If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them to Hebrews chapter 3. So we continue our study of this theme of exhorting one another. Hebrews chapter 3, beginning in verse 12. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Let's pray. Father, as we approach this text yet again, I pray for your blessing. I pray that you would move powerfully, that you would remove distractions, and that you would let us lay aside every weight and the sin that so easily besets us, and that we would approach your word as the true spiritual food that we need. That this moment on a Sunday morning wouldn't be something we do out of obligation or because it's what all our other Christian friends are doing or because that's what we've done since we've grown up. We should be in church. I pray that we would do this because we need you. We need your word. And it is for us what we should live by, by every word that comes out of the mouth of the Lord. And I pray that you would help us, your people, attach ourselves to this text. and We would live obediently to it. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I've said this several times, but it's hard for me to understate the significance of this text in particular for me personally when it comes to understanding what the church is supposed to be, who she is, how we're supposed to relate to each other in the church, and what should be the priorities of a given local body of Christ. When you read this text, it forces you to consider things in ways that you might not otherwise think. It might force you to view the world in a way that you're not naturally disposed to think of it. At the same time, it offers the clarity we need in order to make sense of things and bring the Christian life into perspective and color in or connect the dots with how we're supposed to act. There are many one another passages in the Bible. Love one another. Care for one another. And I could go on and on, but this one, I think, brings them all together. Exhort one another. This text not only does this, but it does it very well. It gives us both the problem and the solution. What is the problem that this text shows us? Unbelief. It calls unbelief evil. It tells us about the danger of falling away. It tells us about the deceitfulness of sin. And if you don't see these things as danger... If you don't see these as real threats, then you are being deceived. 
You have a degree of unbelieving heart in yourself in that you don't believe the Bible's word regarding the danger of these things. You're like the kid that, you know, that says, do not climb over the fence because it's a waterfall on the other side, right? And you're the kid that's hanging on the opposite side of the fence. That's unbelief. You don't believe the dangers here if you're not taking them seriously. You have to do theological gymnastics to try to soothe the severity of this warning. But it also offers the remedy. It doesn't just show us what the danger is and how devastating unbelief can be, the catastrophic results of unbelief, but it gives us the remedy. First, it says, beware, caution, warning, pay attention to this. Beware of unbelief because it creeps in. It is insidious. He also says, exhort one another. Beware or take caution. Be attentive to this, but don't just be, you know, a a hyper spiritual OCD person with everything right within your life. You're to exhort one another. Every day as long as it is called today. So we as a church are going to try to figure out what it means. Because based on the flavor of this text, I could confidently assert that the majority of Christians are not doing this. Exhort one another every day as long as it's called today. Just based on what I've seen, I know I haven't been everywhere in the world, I haven't met every Christian, I haven't been in every church, but I think, I feel that the majority of people who call themselves Christians and attend church, maybe regularly, aren't doing this. And that's why I feel a, a particular weight and concern regarding this passage. How are you? How can I pray for you? Though lovely and necessary, aren't going to cut it. So I know it may frustrate some of you that we'll be spending the next eight weeks or so on this one passage, but it's not overstating anything to say that if we can get this command right, if we can embrace this, if it can be in our DNA, then everything else will fall into place. Two weeks ago, we discussed this passage at length, the full context of it. And I titled it, The War Against Unbelief. And I chose those words carefully, that title, The War Against Unbelief. It's not a battle. It's not a single moment in a day. It's not a tactical strike against unbelief. It is a war. And it goes on and on every day. And it will not end until Christ returns. Last week, we spoke on this. Exhort one another. Because of the resurrection, what we celebrated is that we have a reason, a real reason to exhort one another. We're just not we're not just trying to make ourselves and each other consistent members of a club. Right. Like to be I'm a, I'm a Dallas Cowboys fan. I'm sorry. Right. I grew up in the area. They're my team. OK. So you get a new bandwagon fan, and all are welcome, right? And you try to teach them what it means to be a true fan, right? These are the greats. These are the people that you shouldn't like. These are the teams that you ought to hate, right? So you gotta, you got to teach people, new inductees, what it means to be a good fan. 
That's not what the church is like. Because one day there will no, be no football. There will no, be no Dallas Cowboys. There won't be a Dallas. There won't be a Texas. And we'll all be in the kingdom of God. Exhorting one another has that same flavor of teaching and helping each other understand what it means to belong to this, but it has eternal consequences, eternal benefits, eternal blessing attached to it. Because Jesus is alive. That's what gives it this purpose, this eternal echoing. It goes on forever. What we're doing here, this command to exhort one another, carries on trillions of years from now. If our experience can even be quantified in years. And this has real practical value for you. This, there's this thing going around on Facebook. Yes, I'm on Facebook. I'm sorry. Um, and it says there's a point. Zero two percent that your ch- chance that your child will be a professional athlete, and a one hundred percent chance that he will stand before Jesus one day. And the meme's conclusion is: make sure he's in church, right? And to that, I would modify it and say: exhort your child, exhort one another. Every one of you will stand before Jesus. He's alive, and he has been appointed the judge of all flesh, and he will return to judge the living and the dead. So, Jesus is alive, and it is by that exertion that it means, by that assertion, rather, that any of this has any importance and significance. That was what we talked about last week. So, this week, and I didn't even plan on this when I originally put this, this study together, this week, we're focusing on this idea, exhort one another through prayer. And I want to tell you, I'm already frustrated by this message from before I even started. I have some angst and frustration about even talking about this because I realize by what I'm about to say that I can't make what I want to happen, happen. Prayer forces you to realize your own inadequacy. A biblical understanding of how God relates to us and what we need from Him helps us realize that we are weak. He is the strong one. He is the one with the ability He is the one with the power, and we just don't have it. And only if He wills, only if He blesses, will we be able to proceed. So I could plan out a cool uh, program. I could put together a cool way of uh, reaching people. I could do things in my own life. If I hear a sermon about fitness, I can practically apply that. If I teach about let's do this or that, you know, we can have practical steps to make it happen. But prayer and focusing on prayer is something that is brought by the Spirit. A people of God pleading to the Lord, pleading with the Lord, seeking His help, seeking His work is something that only He can bring. So, first question, how is it warranted to use this text to talk about prayer? And that's an important question. If you're not asking it, trying to train you, These are the types of questions you should ask a preacher. Why are you using this text to teach about that? Here's why. Jesus is already introduced and celebrated as our older brother, our champion, the forerunner, the one who shows us the way. Right? We've talked about that at length in our study of the book of Hebrews. One of the ways 
that we talked about Jesus being our older brother and him showing us the way is that he shows us how to live by example. He doesn't just exert his authority as God, as our older brother, as our forerunner and champion and and says, like many parents might say, do as I say, not as I do, right? He lives the life perfectly for us. He lives in submission to God, the Father, showing us the way. So, three texts support me taking that leap to talk about prayer in this context. And one of them is from the book of Hebrews itself. If we're to follow Jesus' example, and this, this is kind of the hypothetical scenario I'm presenting to you. If you're listening to the author of Hebrews, if you're reading it, you should be asking questions of the text, always. And you should demand answers, right? You should be asking questions of the text and you should be demanding answers. And the Bible interprets the Bible, so it's all here, but you should be asking questions and demanding answers. In this place, chapter 3, verses 12 through 14, he says, exhort one another every day as long as it is called today. But he doesn't explain what that means immediately. And so you should ask the author, how do I do that? Or more appropriately, how do I look at Jesus who is my example and understand how I am to exhort my brothers and sisters in Christ? So skip forward to chapter 5, verses 7 through 10. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Jesus, in the days of his flesh, offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. And it's not just because he serves as our mediator, he serves as our example. How was Jesus able to endure? How was he able to work faithfully in the task that God gave him to do? It was through prayer, by the Spirit. So if you were to ask the author of Hebrews, like I've said, how author of Hebrews, am I supposed to exhort one another? How do I look to Jesus and see in his life how I I should do that? One of the first conclusions that you have to make if you just honestly look at the life of Jesus is that he was a man of prayer. Over and over in the Gospels, you see him leaving a group or gathering a group to pray. And this is the author of Hebrews interpretation. In the days of his flesh, he offered up Supplications and prayers with loud cries and tears. Luke 22, verses 31 through 34. There's another way that we can look to Jesus, who is our example, and understand how we're to exhort one another. This is at the key moment. In Peter's faith. You see, this is how this text relates. We're supposed to exhort one another so we don't fall away from the living God. Exhort one another away from unbelief so that we wouldn't be led astray by the deceitfulness of sin. This is exactly what is going on in this text. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you. 
that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny me three times. So how does Jesus, not only for himself in ensuring that he endures to the end and fulfills his ministry to the end, but also for his disciples, how does he ensure that their faith doesn't fail through prayer? In John 17, just a few excerpts. I could read the whole chapter. We don't have time, unfortunately. Jesus says, Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. So Jesus is praying for his disciples, yes, but also by his own indication for us. So he's making sure that we are kept in God's name, meaning we are sealed by God, one of his, and he asks this through prayer. He says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. So the way that Jesus seeks to make sure that you and I make it home safely is through prayer. So here's my big thesis. If Jesus made it a practice to pray so that he himself would endure and to help his disciples endure, then if we are to exhort one another, it must be through prayer. I hope this isn't difficult for me to sell or a difficult point for you to accept. But I really hope that you can see prayer in a fresh light by how I'm presenting it in this sermon. Have you ever thought of prayer this way? That prayer is what the Lord uses in your life and mine as we pray on behalf of each other to make sure that you and your brothers and sisters make it home safely to his presence. Do you pray this way? If we even prayed like Jesus in this regard, as I was reading the text explaining how Jesus prayed, loud cries, supplications, praying for Peter so that his faith wouldn't fail. Do any of our prayers sound like that? When was the last time you asked the Lord to help someone endure in faith? Have you ever asked the Lord to help a brother or sister so that their faith would not fail? Have you ever offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears? And I'm not saying that should be the case every single time. But if you understand how serious the warnings are and how much you have been given in this great privilege to approach God's very throne and to ask him to do things and his promise that if anything you ask in my name, that I will do for you, then this is something that carries a very heavy weight and a glory beyond our understanding. 
So in answer to that hypothetical scenario I presented where you're sitting in a room with the author of Hebrews or you're just asking him of the text, so, author of Hebrews, how do you want me to exhort my brothers and sisters? I think his answer would probably be prayer first. So with the time we have remaining, I want to talk about how we're trying to do this as a church, practical ways that you can be involved in that, not just here, but in your own lives. The first is our church-wide prayer meeting. What happens on Wednesday night is not for just a fellowship or because churches usually get together on a Wednesday night. And I know it's difficult. It's challenging. There can be awkwardness and silence. And it is not overstating the case that the enemy, if he were to choose one to oppose, he would rather this room be filled every single Sunday and everyone leave with a sense of how beautiful the singing was and how great that preacher was if that room could be empty on Wednesday. If you want to know where God would have you serve and be, you should ask the question, where does the enemy not want you to be? Where is he actively trying to make it difficult and uncomfortable? Why is, where is he trying to oppose and veil and make it awkward? That's where he doesn't want you, and that's where God would have you. And understand that for work reasons, health reasons, and many others, some of you cannot be there. And I'm open to suggestions. We're going to do a survey in the coming weeks. Find a time when we can gather as God's people and pray. And maybe I'm just stubborn and old-fashioned. I feel sometimes like I was born in the wrong century. But I am unwilling, as your pastor, to get us going in other ways and get focused on all sorts of ministries that we could get going and exciting things and bells and whistles if we can't get prayer right as a church. I'm not going to do it. I'm not a church growth expert. I'm not even a Greek expert or a Hebrew expert. I just think I see this is what we're called to as the people of God. You can also transform your own prayer life. Praying for your brothers and sisters is the, in the way that Jesus prays for them. In the way that the apostles pray for them. We already looked at John 17. But I want to take you to Ephesians 3. Ephesians 3, 14 through 21. You may have been a Christian a very long time. But you may have never prayed like this. My challenge to you in us trying to use the Bible to answer the question, how am I to exhort my brothers and sisters in Christ? And one of the ways is begin to pray like the scriptures pray or the authors of scripture pray. Ephesians 3. Starting in verse 14. For this reason, 
I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Have you ever prayed a prayer like that? Does that even make sense to you? Do you even know what he's asking for and why he's asking for it and why he's asking so urgently for it? Jewish men usually wouldn't pray on their knees and when they did, it indicated a high degree of urgency and concern. When I read that, is that does that echo or does that overlay nicely onto your prayer life? This is a critique of me as well. I very often just downshift into the ways of praying that are easy. Help this person with their health. Help me with this situation. Help me be less anxious. Help me be less proud, right? Easy prayers. And I'm not saying those are wrong. We ought to be praying all kinds of prayers. But as we mature in our walk with Christ, I think we would look at prayers like this and begin to mold our prayer life after them. The people sitting in this room are here in your life by God's providence. And you have been placed in their lives by God's providence. And your prayers are by God's providence what he is going to use to make sure that they and you endure. Do you see them as that important? Also, You must teach your children. You must teach your children by example what prayer is, who our great God is. The way you pray to God is more a statement about your theology than a book, than a creed, than a song you sing or who you listen to preach. Because it is the First fruits of your faith, what you say to God, what you ask of him, how you relate to him, how it feels like you have your emotions aligned to him. When your children see that you're saying more about God and you're teaching them more about God than in any other time. Also include them, teach them how to pray and let them listen to the most important prayers you pray. I'm guilty of this. When I pray with Zoe, when I'm putting her to bed, you can just pray very simple prayers. Right? Because I'm exhausted. She should already be asleep by now. It's late. And I just got to get you to sleep. So we're going to fast forward through the prayer and we're just going to say, help me love you. Help me obey. Help Uncle Peter. Help Grandma and Grandpa. In Jesus' name, amen. And what we're saying about God in that moment is not that it's wrong. It's just very, very limited. Show your children the great God of the universe by showing them the size of prayers that we must pray and that we are given the privilege to pray. God, make us more generous. Show us how we can 
Seek your kingdom in our neighborhoods. Help me be reconciled to my father, my mother. Heal this relationship for your glory, for your namesake. Do it. And also learn from your children. There's a professor at University or, uh, Dallas Theological Seminary by the name of Robert Pine. I'm not sure if he's still there, but he wrote a great book. Um, and I read that in college, but my, uh, my youth minister had actually learned under him. And he told this story about learning from his children regarding prayer. As we know from Jesus' life, he says, to such belongs the, ch- the kingdom of God. If you don't make yourself like one of these little children and come to me, you can't be in the kingdom. So he told this story. He, Robert Pine, had a a special needs child and several other children. And they were going to go to the lake, go out on the boat, maybe do some fishing. Don't know exactly all that they were going to do, but it started to rain. As is always the case in Texas, you have no warning whatsoever. And it can happen in a moment. It can be hot. You should pack an umbrella, shorts, and a sweater everywhere you go. Okay? So they get out there. It starts raining, lightning. It's not safe to be on the lake. And the child who had special needs went out to the edge of the pier, stood there, extended his arms up, and cried out to God, God, make it stop raining. And Robert Pine, the professor, felt an inclination in his heart just for a moment to say, uh, we, let's, let's just go. We don't, we don't pray for things like that. But what it did is it exposed in his heart unbelief. So learn from your, children's, your children. They are not jaded like we are. When we can have the faith like a child to pray to our Heavenly Father that way, that it is not outside the realm of possibility that He may just make it stop raining so we could have a nice day on the lake. Also, pray the Scriptures. If you struggle to know how to pray, you're not alone. I would recommend starting in the Psalms. If you've never just come to a dry point in your walk with the Lord, then I need to talk to you and you should probably be wearing the mic. But we often come to these moments where we just don't feel the Lord's nearness. We don't feel an urge to seek His presence and we don't know what we ought to ask. And so the Psalms are so honest with those moments and you can just pray as you're reading exactly what the psalmist is saying. Pray the scriptures over yourself and for yourself. One one example, just one example. It's not that this one stands out head and shoulders above the rest, but Matthew 5. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, this is verse starting in verse 2. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Lord, help me be poor in spirit. Help me understand what that means. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Lord, help me know what it means to mourn in a way that honors you, not as one without hope. And help me understand your comfort that you extend by the Spirit. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Lord, help me in my war against pride. Help me be one of the meek. 
and help me look in hope towards your promise that I will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Lord, I don't know the last time that I hungered and thirsted for righteousness. Expose in my heart unbelief so that I would know what that looks like. Give me a hunger and thirst for righteousness and satisfy my soul. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Lord, help me live in a way that doesn't It doesn't it isn't marked by me insisting on my own rights. Help me have mercy towards those who deserve justice. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Search me and try me, know my thoughts and see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the path everlasting. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Lord, Help us break down the dividing walls of the warring tribes and groups and cliques that exist in my life. In the church and outside the church, make me a peacemaker. So that I can be called in truth, a son of God. And on we could go. As we end. Or wrap up, rather, I just want to read a few texts in the scriptures that have been important in my understanding of what prayer is and how we're supposed to think about it. The first is Ezekiel 14. And there there are many other passages of scripture that are important when it comes to understanding prayer. These are just ones that over the last probably 10 years or so have been important to me. Ezekiel 14. Verses one through five. Then certain of the elders of Israel came to me, the prophet. Right. So there's there's a lot of difficulty happening. They, there might be you know, some war coming. Uh, the oppressor is coming. The certain elders of Israel came to me and sat before me. They're, they're, they're wanting a word from the prophet. They're wanting guidance. They're wanting help to know what we, the people of God, should do. They're in a sense praying. They're seeking God's word from the prophet of God. And the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, these men have taken their idols into their hearts and set a stumbling block for their iniquity before their faces. Should I indeed let myself be consulted by them? Therefore, speak to them and say to them, thus says the Lord God, any one of the house of Israel who takes his idols into his heart and sets the stumbling block of his iniquity before his face and yet comes to the prophet, I, the Lord, will answer him as he comes in with the multitude of his idols that I may lay hold of the hearts of the house of Israel who are estranged from me through their idols. If you come to the Lord, you're seeking guidance, you're seeking blessing, and you have filled your heart with idols. He's only going to answer you and talk to you about those idols. This is why for many of us, praying seems like we're bouncing up against an iron ceiling. Because we are harboring or clinging to idols in our hearts, and he's only going to talk to us about it. And it would be unkind for him to let us continue harboring those idols in our heart and help us and guide us and bless us in all the ways that we're seeking. He wants your heart. 
And the reason he very well may be bringing that difficulty and that desperation into your life is to make you flee those idols and tear them down. So don't lose heart. Just get rid of your idols. Psalm 107. I could really read the whole psalm, but we'll focus on just a few verses. Psalm 107, 10 through 22. Some sat in darkness and in the shadow of death, prisoners in affliction and in irons, for they had rebelled against the words of God and spurned the counsel of the Most High. So he bowed their hearts down with hard labor. They fell down with none to help. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He brought them out of darkness and the shadow of death and burst their bonds apart. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man, for he shatters the doors of bronze and cuts into the bars of iron. Some were fools through their sinful ways and because of their iniquities suffered affliction. They loathed any kind of food and they drew near to the gates of death. They cried out to the Lord in their trouble and he delivered them from their distress. He sent out his word and healed them. And he delivered them from their destruction. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. Regardless of where you've been, what you've done, it may be folly. You might have been a fool. You might have been very wicked. And your life, your trajectory, you have cast yourself upon the rocks. You might be destitute, but for each of those people, the wicked and the foolish in this recounting, they came to a point where they cried out to the Lord in their trouble. And God delivered them. Because he desires to be known as the God who delivers and saves. And it doesn't matter if we have self-inflicted trouble. Whatever it is and however we've gotten there, his desire is to be shown as the redeemer. You may think, well, I don't deserve his mercy or I don't deserve his help. And you'd be right. You don't. But he deserves to be known as redeemer. Isaiah 62 Isaiah 62, verses 6 through 7. This one is just astounding. On your walls, O Jerusalem, I have set watchmen all the day and all the night. They shall never be silent. You who put the Lord in remembrance, take no rest and give him no rest until he establishes Jerusalem and makes it a praise in the earth. God, by his spirit, is intentionally stirring up men and women to, in a way, stand on the wall of Jerusalem while it is in the midst of being taken away into captivity and to pray for Jerusalem and give God no rest. Take no rest and give him no rest until he restores Jerusalem. God is inviting you to keep him awake. Not that he ever sleeps. 
but to bother him, to assault heaven, as it were, with your prayers, to rattle its doors until he answers. That's his attitude towards you, his sons and daughters. Approach me this way. Bother me. It doesn't bother me for you to bother me. Just a few more and we'll be done. Luke 18, 1 through 8. This is kind of along the same lines. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, in a certain city, there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect men, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? He will not delay long over them. I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Do you really believe that about your Lord? That he will not delay long over you, but will give you justice speedily. There have been moments in my life, difficult things that have happened that have challenged that core commitment to belief and that God views me as his son and that he has good intentions and loving intentions towards me. Hard experiences, difficulty, challenge that. And they make us go down to the bottom and make sure that we are very well grounded in the idea that he is our father and he loves us. And he uses this story to say, even if you don't believe that I love you and have all of this care for you, still pray. You would still plead with an unjust judge who didn't care for God or care for people and eventually get justice. Be like the widow. If you're struggling in your heart to believe and trust that God is good and has good intentions for you, doesn't matter. Pray. Seek him. Seek justice. Seek his deliverance. Acts 16, verse 11 through 15. So, setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Simothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city in the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. And we remained in this city for some days, and on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple good, goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized and her whole household as well. She urged us, saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come and stay. Come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. You might be asking, how does this have to do with prayer, with the theme that we're on? The church of Philippi, Philippi, if you're a Greek nerd or not, either way, 
was begun with a prayer meeting. There was just a a group of ladies outside the gate of the city at a place where the Apostle Paul says, we suppose there was that they're just a group meeting for prayer. And that prayer, perhaps for years leading up to the moment where the Apostle Paul came, salvation happened. A church began without a lot of planning on either the Apostle Paul's part or the women's part. They were just praying and seeking the Lord. And that's my heart as your pastor. We can get a lot of cool plans together for all the things that we would like to do. But if we do not seek his face first, then even if we're successful in all the things that we'd like to do, and maybe all the things that he wants us to do, then we would not find God. We would not have more of him. We'd just be really successful. And it is not merciful or kind for God to give us success to bless our efforts if we first do not seek his face. And out of the abundance of seeking his face and finding him, then we go out and do all the things that we would love to do. And lastly, James 5. James 5, 13 through 18. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church. Let them pray over him, anointing him with the oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a a nature like ours. And he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and the the heavens gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. He was a man with a nature just like ours. He's human, Elijah. And he prayed fervently, and if you read Deuteronomy, you know that God promised that if Israel forsook the covenant, that he would bring disaster, that there would be famine, there wouldn't be rain. And so Elijah is just praying that God would fulfill his promises and bring Israel to, the, to repentance. But they were so God-sized and so out of anyone's imagination that the Lord would literally stop it from raining from that entire area for three years and six months. And James's argument is pray like that. That you would so desire to see repentance and revival happen in your time, in your city, that you would pray crazy, God-sized prayers like that. It's not something we can do. There's no plan or strategy to make it stop raining for three years and six months. And I'm not saying that should be our prayer. But that degree of magnificence there is very little that you and I as humans can do to force or make revival, revival happen. But we have been given prayer. So, brothers and sisters, exhort one another. Before we go into all the things we'll talk about and all the different relationships, how husbands can exhort wives, how wives can exhort husbands, how fathers can exhort children, and, and all the different relationships, before we get to that, Pray. Praying always, at all times, with supplication in the Spirit. 
Father, I ask that you would make it so for your glory. I confess for myself and for my life that it doesn't reflect this degree of attentiveness or severity when it comes to prayer. So I ask your forgiveness and I ask that your spirit would move powerfully and stir us up, that the spirit himself would exhort us as he is among us to pray, to plead with you, our father, to do the things that we simply cannot do and that we would be unsatisfied with any level of success or growth if it does not come after us seeking your face and finding you. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.